everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Like Stars Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Pete Goodman. Excited that you joined. Jumping into a new topic today that sort of got going last week. We are going on this episode and probably the next couple, we're going to dive into the issue of women, females in the church and the wider spectrum, look at some of the most difficult passages that talk about it in the scriptures, and uh, yeah, examine what do they have to say to us and what does it mean throughout the history and culture of the church. Not a big deal, uh, but yeah, that's what we do here. So it should be a good start to this episode, and we'll continue on. Uh, as always, if you're joining us, please, 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 if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you're subscribing to the YouTube channel. I'd love to be able to connect you that way. Leave any comments you might have. If you're listening on audio on a podcast, make sure to uh, rate or review the, the podcast. Leave a comment. Again, Anything you can do to say hi, say hello, connect, love to hear from you. And if you have any questions on this podcast, what I talk about on this episode, the future ones or past ones, feel free to find me on social media, Like Stars Podcast on Instagram, Like Stars on Facebook, and uh, the at Like Stars Podcast on YouTube, and my email, Pete at RiseCityChurch.com. A lot to get through there, uh, but would love to hear from you. Um, and uh, yeah, just looking forward to Connecting, talking, hearing wherever you're coming from, especially on what is probably going to be a pretty divisive big issue uh, here on this episode and the ones to come. Uh, also, as we do every week, this episode of the Like Stars podcast is brought to you by, hold on, okay, every time I do this podcast, let's be honest, I just make crap up. I don't really have a sponsor. And some of you are probably thinking, hold on, Pete, you're like a Christian podcast. You're like a pastor. Shouldn't you be like telling the truth? And I thought about that. And the reality is, yes, I should be telling the truth. So, sorry, on this episode of the Like Stars podcast, your sponsor is an actual real existing product. So no, no lies here, all right? Everything I'm about to say is 100% true. In fact, it's not only a real product, it is the closest thing to the miraculous healing power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. That's right. This episode of the Like Stars Broadcast is brought to you by Essential Oils. Formerly known by their slightly less preferred name of snake oil, these mysterious magical ointments are known to cure almost any ailment known to mankind. Got an upset tummy or a minor headache? Rub some frankincense and myrrh on your left index finger and you'll be all set to go. Problem sleeping at night? Don't worry about that at all. Just inhale the glorious vapors of a gallon of petroleum while counting backwards from 50 and standing on your head, and you will be out like a light in no time, I promise you, suffering from an otherwise incurable disease that no doctor on earth knows how to treat. Don't worry about it. Just rub some hyssop and cedar wood on your eyelids. You'll be right as rain, people. Essential oils can do it all. Lost a limb in a major world conflict, having trouble with a rebellious teenager, struggling to make sense of your place in an infinitely expanding universe. Maybe you're having trouble with the missus at home. There's an essential oil for you, I promise. Essential oils are actually recommended by 10 out of 10 stay-at-home moms trying to earn a buck. Unfortunately, they're also recommended by zero out of 10 medical professionals who went to, you know, medical school and, and studied medicine. But hey, some of the oils are mentioned in the Bible. So who cares what those know-it-alls have to say anyway? Essential oils, you are our sponsor for the Like Stars podcast. And with that, let's dive into our topic. And I just want to be clear as I do, 
the fact that I'm doing a podcast on the issue of women, women in ministry and their place in the church has no connection to essential oils and how many women at the church sell that. Wink, wink. No, I'm kidding around. Uh, I respect anyone running a business. My wife did multi-level marketing for a long time, especially stay-at-home moms. Just, I'm just having fun. I'm just joking around with you. But all seriousness, I, I do want to jump into the topic. And we are talking about women, uh, their place in society, and their place in ministry specifically. Now, in the last episode, uh, if you joined it, I, I hope you listened to it. I talked a bit about how I have personally had to wrestle with and deal with feelings of being let down, sometimes by church leaders and their decisions, sometimes by bad decisions. And that started from a place of actually hearing from a female who told me her story and how she was negatively affected by the church. And in her instance, where I shared the story of what I would call like moral failure, in her instance, it, it, it was a little bit different because it was more like the hurt she experienced actually came from what I believe was probably her pastor or church leaders doing what they thought the Bible said to do. Um, and so it led me to really want to tackle an issue that I'd actually been ruminating on a while, and, and I wanted to talk about this, but it really brought it to the surface, about women, the way they're treated, their place within culture, and the church. Because let's be honest, it hasn't always been great, right? Uh, it's There's been a pretty long history of making women sort of second-class citizens, keeping them out of leadership, speaking roles, often highlighting the importance of submission to husbands, sometimes even at the cost of continued abuse, which is a lot to unpack. Like, this is a lot to unpack. Certainly too much to do in one podcast episode. So what I decided to do is uh, we're going to break this into pieces, and I want to start by taking what I would call sort of a big overarching view of, of the issue and the culture and the background, and then dive into the theological ideas behind it, specifically looking at some of the main passages in scripture that I would call the hot button ones, the ones that sort of seem to imply some pretty heavy stuff about women, and in light of the culture they're written. Uh, and I want to give my opinion uh, on how those verses should be understood. My background, the cultural context and stuff isn't so much my opinion. I, I want to state that mostly as what we know about history. Uh, but how I interpret the passages will be my opinion. Um, and I'm going to make a case to you through this podcast that I don't think they should be read as reasons to keep women from leading in ministry or even preaching or in this sort of quiet, submissive thing that oftentimes Christianity has done. Which again, will be my opinion. Uh, you are free to push back uh, and disagree. I mean, I'm talking into an empty room, into a microphone, so I don't know how you do that, but you can certainly email me, call me, whatever. Uh, I welcome any pushback. Uh, I enjoy it, to be honest. Um, but again, I just want you to know that this episode and the one that follows, not going to be one of those times where I just sit down, turn on the mic, and start riffing. Uh, this one is something I've actually spent a decent amount of time researching and preparing for. Uh, I've got some notes, I've got some ideas I want to share that are rooted in some study I've done. So if you're going to be pushing back on me, better bring your A-game. Uh, no pressure. Uh, but then, here's the deal. After I walk through some of the cultural aspects of it, look at some of the scriptures and how I feel like they can be interpreted properly in light of this idea, I also want to talk about the emotional and personal element of it. And so as I mentioned even last week, my plan is to bring someone on, be my first guest on this podcast, who is a female in ministry, and to talk through the ways in which this has affected her and the ways in which she deals with it. So uh, hopefully you look forward to that. It'll be coming in the next episode or two, and we'll, we'll break it down. So again, not a topic I can do in one episode. I'm going to break it up. And through it all, I'm going to essentially seek to answer this one 
primary question. And the question I want to ask that a lot of people ask, I want to answer is this, how should we understand biblical passages that appear to diminish the role of women and their opportunities, both in society at large, but also specifically in the church? What do we do with these passages? So I'm not going to get into a lot of the passages in this episode. I'm going to give a background, a context for it, but that's really where I'm headed. How do we interpret these passages uh, properly and that seem to be pointing to all this stuff. Passages that call women to be quiet, submissive to men, more prone to sin, uh, open to deception more than men, unable to teach, uh, even telling them to be downright silent in church. What do you do with this stuff? Are these not clear and obvious statements that should forbid women to even aspire to leadership within the church, to be pastors or anything like that? Um, and nothing more than stay-at-home moms saying yes, sir, to whatever their husbands ask. <laughs> Told you it's going to be a heavy episode, a couple of them. And what I want to argue and demonstrate is uh, through these episodes, through this one and the one that follows, is that I believe a huge part of this discussion in our interpretations of these passages, the way that we talk about them, the way that we think about them, is often missing something that is absolutely vital and central to proper interpretation when you're going to read these passages and you're going to try to imply them to our world today that have serious effects and consequences on half of the world's population, women, we need to make sure we're paying attention to something that I think is so vital. And that thing is cultural context, cultural context. And I've done some work on this before. Some of you have had classes with me or different things. You've heard me talk about this. My entire doctorate program was centered around the cultural context of the first century in which the New Testament was written. The word context is a word that simply means that which surrounds a text, literally with the text. Uh, everything that came before it, that comes after it, you don't just take a sentence and say, oh, here's a sentence. You take the whole passage and you look at the whole chapter, you look at the whole section, you look at the whole book, you look at the whole Bible. It's all done within context. One of the worst things we can do is just pull out a line out of the Bible, assume we know what it means without reading what came before and what came after. Well, who is the author? Why were they writing? What was their point of the whole letter? How does their argument play out? How does it flow? All of these things matter when making sense of a statement or a passage or a phrase. That's context. Cultural context is the same idea in light of the world in which it was written. So who was the author is, is the this context, but what was the author like? What was their background? What was the author's basic beliefs? Who were these people the author was writing to? How did they see the world? Um, how, how did they behave culturally? What did they value? What mattered to them? What was going on politically and socially at large? How did people think about big issues when this was written? And this is so huge for us because the ways in which people thought, the ways in which they valued things, the way, they, the way their culture highlighted some things and didn't highlight other things, the way certain things were faux pas and other things were things you absolutely must do. Some things were, ah, that's not a big deal. Other things were like, no, you gotta do this. Those cultural things change over time. Our culture living in America in 2023, when I'm recording this, is very different than the culture of the Bible. There were some massive differences in the way they thought about the world and the way they thought about uh, gender and family and honor and shame and group identity. There's all these kinds of things. And these things play into the writings because those were the people writing and being written to. So it's important that we understand cultural context. Let me give you an example of cultural context. 
The first time I ever uh, went to Europe on a missions trip, we went to Germany. Uh, we went there during the World Cup in, I think, 2006. And I, <laughs> it was a great trip. But I remember there was this moment. We're in Germany. I'd never been there before. And we were doing a youth rally. I, I want to highlight that word, youth rally, <laughs> for youth, like high school, middle schoolers. And this church invited us to come. And this American group of people that did like hip hop and stuff. And they, they had a big field and they had a stage out there. And they're inviting all these kids to come to it. And I remember getting there and being like, this is cool. They're showing us where around, where to set up our audio stuff and everything. And uh, I'll never forget this moment when I, I'm like working on some stuff. So one of the guys had like DJ stuff. We're setting it up. This truck pulls up next to the stage, a pickup truck. And a guy gets out of the truck and he lowers the the back of the, the bed down. And in the back of the truck are three massive beer kegs. And he proceeds to tap all three of them and go, all right, everybody, come and get it. And my team and I are just like stunned. Where our jaws like hit the floor. We're just like, what in the world is going on? Like we're at a youth event. These are high school, these are teenagers. <laughs> you just brought three kegs as if this was like a secret underground party when my parents are out of town or something. It was so shocking. And I, I think they quickly realized they like they kind of had forgotten. They're like, oh, Americans, oh shoot, you guys, you think of alcohol differently than us, don't you? Absolutely. Now, here's the th what's important to understand about that story is what you just what just happened was a difference of cultural context in Germany. And I remember having these long conversations afterward. I won't help me understand this, you know, cause in America, we don't do this in Germany. Drinking isn't quite the same thing. It doesn't have the same, uh, I, I don't know. They, we don't, they don't have the, the age limits. They didn't go to prohibition and all that kind of stuff. They just have a very different view of beer than we do. And I'm not making any statements about it here. That's not this place for this podcast. Just to say that there was a very, two cultures clashed in that moment. There was a cultural divide and two people failed to understand each other. So American Christians often talk about alcohol, what's good about it, what's bad about it, how Christians should or shouldn't behave with it in ways that people in Germany don't understand because they're like, we, that's not our culture. Uh, another example, and this one's a little silly too. Another missions trip I took with some students, we went to Brazil and uh, this one stands out to me because we were in Brazil and one of the students was talking to another student and asked him to do something. And the student held up their hand and with their index finger and thumb made the okay sign and went, all right, gotcha. And like went like that. And all these Brazilian people around us just like, oh, <laughs> this is a weird, and we're all like, what, what, what just happened? Well, I didn't know this. Some of you might know this. In Brazil, the okay sign is actually the middle finger. <laughs> what? And so we're sitting there and like, oh, they're just like flabbergasted that like a 14 year old just like basically flipped off another friend in church. Well, for us, that mean, that, well, that doesn't mean anything, right? I don't know. It's just, a, I meant, okay, cultural differences. In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us, he, he makes a command to the churches. And he says, among you, there should be no, he, he says this, there should be no obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. Well, think about this for a second. What is coarse joking? What is coarse? Like, that's, that's, that's a big question. If the Bible was written in Brazil, if Paul was a Brazilian, would Paul have said, among your churches, you know, there should be no okay signs. <laughs> That's, uh, don't ever do that. That's a sin. Well, if, if they did that, what would happen when other cultures like Americans interpreted and read that passage? 
would they read it and be like, wait, hold on. It's a sin to arch your finger and touch your thumb? Is it some kind of demonic incantation? I don't understand. Why is this a sin? Would it be like this universal thing that God intended before the creation of the world that forming a circle with your fingers is, is from the pit of hell? Like, Would we be so confused? Would we create whole theologies trying to figure out why creating a circle with your finger? Well, maybe it represents one of the layers of hell or maybe the circle. Like, we would completely miss the point because of cultural context, not knowing that in Brazil, that's coarse joking. But on the one hand, and I want to stick with this for a second, because Paul is making a very general statement, isn't he? A statement that applies to everyone. I think an informed reader of the Bible would hear that and say, Paul is talking to everyone. He's not just talking to the church in Ephesus. He's making a big, broad statement about how the Christian community should behave. There shouldn't be things that are obscene. We shouldn't be talking in ways that are offensive and crude and coarse. It's just not how Christians should act. That is basically universal, right? But what is coarse joking <laughs> and what isn't? So on the one hand, I can take a principle out of there and say we shouldn't course joke, but what exactly is it? What Paul might have found crude or foolish or offensive might be no big deal to us. Just like a Brazilian, though, finding our little normal American hand gesture to be an insult, you and I might read and hear things Paul said and think that's offensive. How, would you, how could you say that, right? Because you have this cultural divide oftentimes. So even a statement like don't tell coarse jokes has to be interpreted through culture. Well, what's coarse in your culture? What is crude in your culture? There are things that you absolutely can't say in some cultures that in other cultures they would just laugh at and think we're no big deal. It's, there's always a difference when cultures collide. One of the most clear ways that cultures collide is when people get married. I remember when Julie and I first got married, one of the things that we wrestled with was the expectation about what each of us were supposed to do, our supposed roles. My wife had this ingrained belief that as soon as she got married, the husband would do all of the yard work. The husband will mow the lawn, the husband will do everything outside, and you know, the husband will take out the trash. And it was like she had this list of things the husband did. Well, when I grew up, my mom actually did the lawn work. She liked to be outside. She enjoyed gardening and stuff. That was much more my mom's thing. So I didn't grow up thinking that's what a man does. And suddenly we're married and we have this difference of cultural context. My wife was almost insulted that I might think she could mow the lawn. And like I was like, I can do the dishes. What's happening here? I, it, was just, it was just very different. Well, who's right? Who's supposed to do the laundry? Who's supposed to mow the lawn? Is there a right answer to that? If you say there is, you might be mistaking and confusing cultural differences from universal truths. Because within a culture, some things are right and wrong because that's generally accepted. And to do otherwise creates problems. It's scandalous. It, it raises eyebrows. It makes people weirded out. So just don't do it. But in your own culture, they might be perfectly fine. Because I grew up this way, that's what you should do, is not always true. You grew up in a different culture than I did, even within one bigger culture called America. We all have our own home cultures and church cultures and all that kind of stuff. Stuff that you find offensive might not be a big deal to me. Another thing, my when I grew up, you know, I didn't say any of the big swear words, but you know, the Christian cussing I was always down with. But nobody had an issue with the word God growing up for me. So I'm like, oh God, oh, oh come on, oh God, that's dumb kind of thing. My wife grew up in a home where even saying the word God in a context like that was bad. And she was like horrified that I would say that. Well, because she was horrified that I said that I would say that, 
I don't want my wife to be horrified. I don't want my wife to feel uncomfortable and to be like, ah, whenever I say a word. So I stopped saying it. I also took out the garbage and did the lawn work until we finally blessedly got turf. Thank Jesus. Um, I made some decisions to step into her culture and accept her culture because of the relationship we had together. And I think one of the things that you see in the scriptures is a principle that, especially in the book of Corinthians, Paul wants to push on us. Uh, he, he talks about meat sacrificed to idols at one point. And he says, look, it's not, it's just meat. It doesn't matter. The issue though is in some Christian circles, people are really offended by that. And it can really bother them and get them angry or, or kind of flip them out, or freak them out. Like, wouldn't it be better to skip a meal and not eat that than make them feel bad? He's talking about cultural differences and how sometimes we should just accept cultural things and follow them just for the good of the people we're with. Uh, to not be scandalous. So over the past 15 years, I've completely stopped saying God when I talk um, in you know flippant language. The irony is after a few years, it started sounding weird to me. Now when I hear people say it, I'm like, ooh, I kind of cringe. I'm like, I don't like you saying that. <laughs> but it's just because I've sort of adapted that culture. So let's take this to the Bible. Some passages are completely unrelated to any cultural as- issue or aspect. They're completely devoid of cultural ties. Let me give you an example. Do not murder. There are no uh, cultural ties to don't murder. Do not steal. Don't give false testimony. When the scriptures give these commands, they're not giving them with this like, there's nothing tied to it. There's nothing wrapped together with the culture. Murder is wrong. It always has been. It is now. It always will be. Same with lying and stealing. It doesn't matter what culture you live in. Uh, They're not connected to time or place or what people feel in the moment. They're universal commands that are rooted in how God intended and created human beings to behave. God's intention is that humans have value. We don't murder each other. God's intention is that we are honest with each other. We don't take things that aren't ours. These things are just always true. It doesn't matter where you are. However, other passages can be the complete other end of the spectrum. Did you know that in four of Paul's letters, he calls for us to greet one another with a holy kiss? In their culture, that was a very kind, welcoming gesture. It showed proper affection. In our culture, it's weird and creepy. At best, borderline offensive and criminal at worst. Don't do that, (laughs) thankfully. So those commands by Paul, and their commands, he says, do this. They're completely and totally wrapped up in culture and have no direct bearing on our world today. They're not not tied to uh, how we think in America like we don't do that. And so we read those passages, our mind kind of just skims over. Yeah, that was that was 2000 years ago. We don't do that anymore, Paul. Your brain just kind of does that. It's okay. It's not a big deal. There might be a principle in there, you know, be kind to people, say hello, but we don't we don't actually believe we're supposed to kiss people. It's awkward. But let's get more to the point. What about Paul saying women should dress modestly in 1 Timothy? And then he gives specific examples about what that looks like. No elaborate hairstyles, uh, expense, no expensive clothing, lay off the jewelry. Think about this for a moment. You have a general statement that appears to cross cultures that, you know, something good about modesty, um, like the, the heartbeat of modesty saying, let's not offend people or be whatever, outrageous. But then you have very specific things that don't appear to cross culture. Um, there's nothing scandalous in America today about expensive clothes or wearing jewelry or a hairstyle. So being modest is a bigger principle, but what is modest is very specific to culture. 
And this verse needs to be read and interpreted within its cultural context. The way that you interpret that passage is to say, in my culture, what does modesty look like? The, the principle here is I'm not supposed to be doing things that are scandalous or outrageous or causing attention, but what does that look like here? I mean, you just imagine like, and this is a side point, but I could imagine if the Apostle Paul was transferred 2,000 years in the future and went to a San Diego beach on a June Saturday, he would just, what? In the name of the Lord? <laughs> he would think it was the most sinful, dishonest display of anything he'd ever seen. And he might be partly right, let's be honest. But for the most part, we, our culture kind of has a certain thing about beachwear at the ocean. Modesty has a different take in different cultures, in different settings. So here's where this kind of hits home for us, and, and you'll kind of see where I'm going here. I think there are three big social issues in the scriptures that we wrestle with cultural context, and they create a bit of a spectrum, they, like a line, different ends of it. On one end, you have the issue of slavery, and this podcast isn't about slavery. Maybe I'll talk about it in the future what, but slavery there are passages in scripture that talk about it, that seem to be okay with it. There's places where Paul tells a slave to go back and be, he, Paul tells slaves to obey their masters. Um, you know, it just, there's nowhere in the Bible where it says, don't do this. It never condemns it. And so it's like, wait, so should we believe that slavery is a good thing? But what we see in slavery is that the scriptures, number one, there are references to it that are cultural. Slavery was the culture of the ancient world. And so, of course, it was going to speak about it and talk about it like it was a normal thing, even if it offends us today, because it's not. Back then, it didn't. We also see that there's no places in Scripture where it actually condones it or says slavery is good. Oftentimes, even when Paul is talking about slavery, he's doing it in the same idea. Like, I'm not saying I like slavery, but if you are a slave, the best way to, to show Jesus and show others like that you have a different changed life is to actually, man, you know, still choose to be faithful and loyal, even in this crappy situation. And we see some of that in the Old Testament as well. Uh, slavery is allowed in the Old Testament. It's not condoned. And so what, what I'm getting at is you have this big issue of slavery. The more you unpack it, the more you find that almost any part of the Bible that seems like it might be pointing to slavery being a good thing or an okay thing is so wrapped in culture that when you separate it, when you pull it away, you actually find that it's just not there. And so slavery is sort of off on this left side of the spectrum. On the far other end of the spectrum is the one that we're really dealing with today, sexuality, human sexuality. Again, you have all these verses that seem to say, this is appropriate, this isn't. And what a lot of people today want to say is, oh, that was just cultural, that's old, that, you don't need to do that anymore. They're bringing it to the spectrum. But the problem with sexuality is it's the opposite. Um, almost no scriptures that speak of appropriate sexual behavior have any cultural ties. Uh, most are direct commands, similar to don't murder, do not do this. And throughout the scriptures, the motivation or reason behind certain sexual ethical statements is rooted in creation itself. This is God's intention for humanity. So if you try to peel away the cultural attachments to it, what you're left is with still a statement of don't do this. And so that's kind of on the other end of the spectrum. On one side, culture seems to say, actually, the Bible isn't condoning that. On the other side, cultural seems to say, no, actually, no, this is clearly what the Bible is saying. In the middle of that spectrum, though, you have this issue of women, because there appear, on the surface at least, to be passages on both sides. Some verses seem to diminish and almost repress women in their voice. Like, it does seem to say, like, be submissive, be silent, can't teach, like, keep your mouth shut, right? 
Other places, though, do the opposite. And it's not always clear, easy to see or know what is or isn't culturally bound or connected to our kind of fallen state. What's universal, true for everybody, modesty, no coarse joking, don't murder, and what parts of these statements about women are part of the brokenness of humanity or part of social norms of the Roman Empire, you know, don't wear expensive jewelry or whatever, that's not rooted in creation, but is just part of their culture and we can let go of. And it can be pretty confusing at times because not only are there multiple places throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament where women seem to be forbidden to lead or to teach, especially by the Apostle Paul, we actually see examples of them leading, them doing leading, oftentimes from Paul himself. It's like, ah, what's going on here? So it's a pretty big tension, both in what it means for how we understand the role of women, both in the church and society at large, but also how we interpret scripture in general, how we unpack culture from the truth that's, that's at the core of it. And I believe the confusion regarding women, personally, I believe, is highly cultural. And this leads to two main views. You may have heard these before. One view is called complementarianism. Complementarianism believes that there are real differences between men and women, and those inherent differences that God created and God intended mean that women should be submissive and under male leadership and not allowed to you know, be in charge and teach in things. That's the complementarian. Women complement men, men lead, women support. The other side of the spectrum is egalitarian. Differences exist. We acknowledge that. They acknowledge that. But this whole idea of like full submission, men have to be in charge, women can't lead, women shouldn't even teach, is not one of the differences. It's more of cultural ties that we need to separate. And then, of course, there's a spectrum between them, like politics, Republicans and Democrats. You can be a Democrat, but you can kind of be in the middle. You can be a Republican, but not be way over here. Some people are complementarians, but they're kind of in the middle. And some are egalitarian, but they're kind of over here. One of the reasons why that is is because some of these passages are just so confusing. Personally, I don't mind saying I'm more of an egalitarian. Uh, I think this issue needs to move towards the slavery side of the spectrum in the sense that the more we unpack it, the more we realize the scriptures talk about it and say things that are very culturally bound. But when you unpack them, it's not telling us that slavery is good and it's not telling us that women should be submissive and oppressed and not doing things in the church. It's more part of our brokenness it's rooted more in the, the dysfunction that's come out of sin than rooted in the creation of what God intended for humanity. So that's where I plan to go. Now, the first thing we need to do is get a solid understanding of cultural context. What was it like to be a female in the ancient world in which these scriptures were written? How did people think and behave? And how might that influence how and what we read? This raises two very important ideas. I can't get into both of them. One of them is honor and shame, which maybe I'll do a whole podcast on that. But really, it brings up the idea of what was it like to be a female in the ancient world? So as I wrap up, and I'm not, I'm not almost done, but as I'm kind of heading in the direction here of this first episode, I want to spend some time talking about the culture of women in the ancient world. What did that actually look like? Because that was the scriptures were written in. So here's where I want to start. In the entire ancient world, not just Jews and Christians, everybody... The whole world was patriarchal. You probably hear that word a lot. Oh, the patriarchy. Patriarchy means that you have a group identity, fam close family structures, small clans basically, and one person acts as sort of the chief or the head of that clan, that household, and that person is the oldest, most experienced, wise male, the man, the man, he's in charge. Usually he's the oldest. Then everyone else sort of submits to him and the family runs with that person sort of as the, the president or whatever, the king of the little family unit. There was a generally held view that this was part of the divine order. Men came first in a lot of creation stories, not just the Israelites one. 
And because in, for the Greeks, if something came first, it was superior or better. So the man was superior, the man was better, he should be in charge. And then everyone had a role to play. The family unit was like a, a machine where every cog had a different thing it had to do. And the primary role of the, not all men, the, the, the patriarch was in charge, but the rest of the men weren't all in charge. Their primary job was work and provision and safety and protection. So the men would, would uh, go out and hunt and fish and, and do the work, carpentry, things like that, uh, or be in the military, and they would keep their family safe. That was the role of the man. The woman's role, on the other hand, was the household and the children. And this was huge. And I just want you to think about this. A world that didn't have instant food and microwaves and grocery stores, uh, didn't even have schools for kids to go to necessarily. Women literally did everything in the household while the men were away. It's how the world worked. And it was a lot of work. Like just to get fresh water, they might have to walk two miles. <laughs> they, they, if you break bread, you were starting from scratch. Literally, you didn't buy a package and throw it together. So women had a lot to do. Running a household was a big responsibility and raising kids was a lot of work. Uh, especially if you were a normal poor family that didn't have servants and things. Because of this, women were encouraged to focus on the home. To, they were often even said, don't, they were encouraged to not even leave their homes because if they leave, if they start thinking about other things, if they thought about school, they're going to lose focus on what matters. The home's not going to get taken care of. So women were encouraged to just focus on staying at home. Don't get distracted with things like learning and politics. and the, That's men's stuff, right? We'll take care of that. You take care of the house. Raise the kids. Now, speaking of men, this is important too, men would often wait longer to get married because their primary responsibility was providing for the family. Primary role was providing for, whether that was going to work, whatever it was. So before they would get married, they'd try to establish themselves. They would get, start a career, try to save some money, build a little home. Oftentimes, men weren't getting married until their late 20s in order to be financially stable and have prepared the home. This meant that a man in his 20s would have a choice to stay and work hard and prepare for family or run off wild and be stupid, do whatever you want. The women, though, not so much. You couldn't have them doing that because one of the big ideas about, about the culture was premarital pregnancy was a massive problem, massive problem. If, for one, a, a woman, a, a girl brought a big dowry to the family. So her going off and getting married helped the family. She gets pregnant before marriage, that's out the window. Um, it was also just shameful. It was something you wanted to avoid. A lot of the elements of children um, were about inheritance and, and children caring for the parents, all these kind of things. So an illegitimate child was a huge problem. And so here's what they would do. How do you avoid that? Well, you do avoid that two ways. Number one, you get them married young. And so you were actually having girls get, getting pledged to be married at 12, 13, 14 years old. And they were marrying guys that were in their late 20s sometimes, if not worse. Sometimes you'd have a 13-year-old marrying a 50-year-old on his third marriage. Well, what would that mean? Well, naturally, it would mean the girl was less mature. And it was a husband's job to care for, provide, and educate his wife. There weren't schools she could go to if he wanted to. He wasn't forced to. He had to be the head, the provider, the one that led and gave everything because she was basically a kid, had almost no rights and would be absolutely screwed if he left or died. Uh, the husband was older. He would usually die first. And this is why there's so many widows. The Bible is always talking about caring for widows because so many women were left as widows uh, because they married young and their husbands died. Uh, and of course, a lot of them died in childbirth, which we're going to get into in the next episode. 
But this led to an overall view that women were seen as weak and less than men, especially mentally. They, they thought they were dim-witted, not as smart. They were more vulnerable to sexual temptation and passion. Yes, they actually believe that. Uh, Greeks like Aristotle went as far as to say women had inferior reasoning power. Plato claimed women were defective males. Now, next time you want to get mad at Christians, just remember the greatest Greek philosopher of all time who had nothing to do with Christianity said women were defective males. This was a male-dominated world across the board, and women were second-class and inferior, and basically not given a chance to get ahead. To be ruled by a woman was considered shameful. They had to stay in their place. They were stupid. They weren't. They were intelligent. And because of how women were seen as a man's property, adultery wasn't two people cheating on their spouses. Adultery was taking another man's wife, stealing his property and risking his inheritance and his offspring and things. So because this was such a big deal, remember I said there were two issues related to it. The first was, you know, they'd marry young. The second was there were very strict cultural norms put in place for how women should behave in public, especially towards men. So modesty in the ancient world was not just like, hey, you know, cover up, honey. Um, it was more about don't do anything that might make another man uh, assault you. <laughs> Literally, like if another man like took a woman who was married to another man and, and forced himself on her, in some ways it would be her fault. What did she do? You know, and that's a whole Me Too thing going on. And I don't want to get into that right now. But like that was a big part of the ancient world. So women weren't supposed to look at men, keep your eyes down, don't talk to them, always dress full. And this, we still see this in the East Asian world, right? In, in Muslim countries, they still follow all of this. So act timid, shy, don't be outspoken, keep yourself covered. And there was much discussion about men, how women should and shouldn't behave and act in order to avoid adultery. This led to these strong expectations of modesty, of submission, sometimes even silence, and ignorance, ignorance, <laughs> Ignorance. I, and I, I just want you to think about that for a moment because it's such a big deal. Like, process with me. What happens in a culture when girls are not let, they don't allow them to go to school. From the, from as soon as they're old enough to do anything, they just start working in the home with the mom. They're uneducated. We marry them off young, 13 years old, discourage them from leaving the house. They're going to lack insight and understanding about the world. They are going to appear unintelligent. This was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Look how dim-witted and stupid those women are. <laughs> the women that we forced to marry at 13 and didn't teach how to read, right? The women that we forced to work their butts all day at home and while we chill and philosophize to make sure we have food on our tables when we get home. Look how dumb they are. <laughs> Look how incapable of leading and weak they have. No strong opinions, after we've spent a thousand years making sure they never lead or have strong opinions. This was a culture that was forcing this and, and perpetuating this on its women. You weren't given a chance to learn. You weren't given a chance to grow. So of course, in the moment, you, you would look stupid. Any of us would. If we were doing this to boys, men would look stupid, right? Let's just be honest. This was the culture in which it happened. And I wanna make sure you hear this because this is important. Sometimes it's like, oh, it's just Christianity. No, it wasn't just Christianity. Uh, this was not just, you know, sort of the patriarchy, it's all about Christianity. This was the entire world. The entire ancient world acted this way. And even if you look at the Old Testament law, like going back to Judaism, like, well, the law says stuff that seems to oppress women. Look, what the law does, what the Old Testament does, is simply shows and reflects what the world was like at the time. 
Um, it also reflected a violent, oppressive, slave-ridden culture. But I don't think it believes that slavery and violence and oppression is part of God's plan for the world. It doesn't condone what it did to women. It's just acknowledge that was the brokenness of the world. It's not a template of God's ideal society. It was an attempt to move us towards something else. And it did. The Old Testament Judaic law pushed women way further than ever before, some radical ways. It held both men and women accountable under the law, which other societies didn't. Um, many laws were put in place in Judaism to protect women to help them, to keep them from being abused and violated. Even the law about divorce, the Old Testament doesn't want you to get divorced. We saw that in the New Testament. It has the law in place to make sure that if a man does leave his wife, she's not destitute. You have to take care of her, take care of widows, take care, like the law, it looks oppressive to us in 2023, but 3,000 years ago, it was actually radical in how much it took care of women. But the point of the law was not to perpetuate male dominance. Uh, it was to speak into an already male-dominated society. This was the world. Everybody was doing it. Um, and offer some protection, care, and even elevate women. Uh, it worked within the framework of what existed at the time. And as Christians, we can look back and say, okay, we honored it. There's, we've, I talked about this in another podcast. Um, but looking ahead to new creation and what God wants to restore, we then begin to see in Jesus. And Jesus took it up a notch, people. <laughs> Many argue that Jesus elevated women more than any single person in human history, especially for the culture he was in. Despite all the cultural taboos of who you're supposed to talk to, Jesus openly conversed with women in public, even when it brought trouble on himself. He's like, I'm not buying into this crap. I'm going to talk to you. Let's talk. He favored them in his teachings. He didn't just say, all right, men, let me explain things. He actually said, no, men, think about these women over here and what they're going through. You think it's okay to get divorced. Let me tell you, God doesn't want you to get divorced. He only let you do that because your hearts were hard and you were terrible husbands. <laughs> and he absolutely allowed them on his leadership team and ministry. He had female disciples. And I think he even had a female apostle. And we're going to get into that in the next episode. He doesn't le limit leadership to men. Um, and no, the first 12 being all men isn't a good argument because there were more apostles than the first 12. And I think many of them were women. Um, and there's a moment where he's at a house in Mary and Martha. Are, and this is the moment Mary and Martha come in and um, Martha gets mad because she's doing the housework and Mary's just sitting there and Martha says, Jesus, tell her to come help me. And Jesus says, actually, Martha, in our culture, in this world that you grew up in, everyone for your whole life has told you that what you're doing is the right thing. You're doing your role, you're doing the housework, and you're mad at Mary because she's doing what men do, sitting here learning, dialoguing with me. But Mary has chosen correctly. Like Jesus said, Mary, stay here. Martha, if you want to put the pots down and come in and talk to me, let's do it. <laughs> you don't have to stay in the kitchen. Uh, that's, not, that's not what I have for you. Jesus appears to be showing us God's true intent and heart for women. And I think it's amazing. And it starts a whole movement that ultimately led to where we are today. So let me come back, though. Let me on with this. Think about this with me. What happens where in a culture, girls are uneducated, married young, discouraged leaving the house, they're going to lack insight and understanding about the world. They're going to appear unintelligent, right? Well, again, let me, let me bring this home. We know that women aren't stupid. We know that women are unintelligent. We're past that, people. <laughs> We're past that. But what about this idea of roles that we see in the scriptures? Well, you need to ask this question. Are the roles that we think we see in scripture part of God's created order, what he wants for humanity, and we shouldn't ever mess with them? Or were some of them the result of a culture that 
required women to marry young, stay home and not be educated, and then led to what we see about how they're not qualified for things. And if so, what happens when that culture changes so much that women now have the same education as men, where technology means household chores aren't nearly as taxing, and it's understood that a woman is not property, adultery is both sides, right? You're not ruined because you get pregnant. Like it's, the, the culture has shifted. And women are now much more free to do the same thing that men's do. So does that mean that we should still be holding on to all these things because they're rooted in God's created order? Or should the shifting culture tell us maybe it's time that we rethink some of these passages in light of shifting culture? What does understanding their culture, where women fit in that time, mean for how we read and understand the biblical passages today that speak sometimes harshly and offensively about the role of women in society? And is it possible that some of those passages that we've been holding on to, saying right here, 1 Timothy, 1 Corinthians, women should be quiet. Is it possible that some of those passages are way more culturally bound than we want to admit? And if we'll start to unpack them and pull off some of that culture, we'll realize they don't quite have the same force we thought they did. Um, and that's what I want to do. So uh, I'm going to end this podcast here, and then I'm going to pick up with another one, and we'll release it when it's done. Uh, but what I want to do next is I want to actually start to break down those passages. I want to look at them. There's three big ones in the New Testament, two in Corinthians and one in First Timothy. I also want to look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and how it talks about the original created order um, and see how much of this is culture, how much of this is intended, and how should we think about women in ministry moving forward. Uh, and that's the vision. And then again, after that, well, I'm going to try to bring someone on and have a conversation about it. hope this was helpful. If you have any questions, any insights or thoughts you want to ask me, please don't hesitate to. Uh, however I can help, I'd love to. Um, like I mentioned, please, if, if you know someone who's wrestling with this, argue, go, feel free to share this with them. Leave a comment, uh, anything you got out of it. If you want to go back and forth, email me, let me know. Love to hear from you. But uh, look forward to continuing this conversation in the next episode. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you later.